Acts chapter 20, we'll begin reading in verse 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 20. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God." Our series this month has been Driven. The concept of driven is basically asking your heart, what is my motivation? What drives me to do what I do? What motivates me to do what I do? And if we're going to ask ourselves, why do I do what I do? What is the motivation for what I do? We have to ask, what is it that we're doing? And when we ask what we're doing, we find out what we're doing, then we can figure out our motivation for what we're doing. Now, the theme of these messages over the past month have been to learn how our personal redemption in Christ should be our motivation. It should be what drives us. And our personal redemption in Christ, our salvation experience and knowing what Christ has saved us from should be what drives us and motivates us in our lives. It should also motivate us and drive us to share the gospel with others. Amen. A wise man once said, evangelism is one homeless man telling another where he found bread. Amen. Whenever we come across something that's really amazing to us, we want to share it with others. I found a new show on TV. Let me tell you all about it. It comes on this channel at this particular time of the day. And if you can't catch it then, it's on Hulu the next day. And how about that Hulu Disney Plus ESPN Plus subscription you can now buy into. where You've got all the Disney movies. You can watch the sports and keep your Hulu subscription. We, we, we get excited about products, don't we? We get excited about menu options. Have you tried the new breakfast burger at Whataburger? I haven't. But have you? I mean, you know, you come across something like that, you want to share it. Mm -hmm. But what about our redemption? What about our salvation? Amen. You see, our hope in Christ should motivate us to share the gospel. Our compassion and our concern for others should motivate us to share the gospel. Our desire to see others redeemed should drive us to share the gospel. Now, as we look in Acts chapter 20 today... We are going to learn just how motivated and just how driven we should be. Because what you see in Acts chapter 20 is you see this amazing motivation. You see this amazing commitment. You see a man who is so driven that he is laying his life down for his cause. The apostle Paul so believed in the Lord, had such a faith in the Lord and in the Lord's salvation of him, the, the Lord's grace on him, God's grace on him, his forgiveness and his redemption, 
that he could not help but tell others. And he was so driven that that's what his life became about. Paul did not have split loyalties. Yes, he was a tent maker. Yes, he worked secularly from time to time. But he was never split in his loyalties between his uh, secular profession and his mission to spread the gospel. Paul felt driven by the Holy Spirit to go down to Jerusalem. We see that in verse 22. And as Paul visited churches on his way to Jerusalem, he was continually warned that bad things were going to happen to Jerusalem. The prophets didn't come to Paul and say, congratulations on going to Jerusalem, Paul. You're going to have a great ministry there. They didn't say, you're going to reach hundreds of people there. They didn't say that you're going to get $1,000 there. They said, you go down there, Paul, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to be bound up. Yet Paul still felt the Spirit leading him to Jerusalem. So he continued to follow God's will that he was to go to Jerusalem. And he was prepared to die in Jerusalem. Why and how? How did he become this committed? How did he become this faithful? What drove him? How did Paul become this committed? He was so committed to the cause of Christ for three reasons. He was so committed because, first of all, he had the right experience. We talk about experience. You go interview for a job. What kind of experience you got? I got 10 years. That's not what we're talking about. Paul's experience was one experience. Paul was so committed because he had the right message. And he was so committed because he had the right mission. A commitment like that takes faith. And that kind of faith makes an impact. If I may editorialize, the buzzword in Christianity for the past 20 years has been relevance. How well can you relate? And to relate, you have to be just like them. Look like them. Drink coffee with them. Drink the same kind of coffee with them. Dress like them. Listen to the same music. Yet when we eulogize the great leaders of the faith, the great evangelists, the Billy Grahams, we don't remember the impact they had for the kingdom because of how well they fit in with everybody but rather because of their commitment a commitment like that takes faith and that faith makes an impact nobody's going to remember you for how well you conform to society what they're going to remember you for is your faith they're going to say even if they reject your message they're going to say they were the real deal A commitment like that takes faith, and that faith makes an impact. For us to be like Paul, we too must have the right experience. We too must have the right message. And we too must have the right mission. So let's talk about the right experience. The Apostle Paul's experience. What was his experience? His experience was being pardoned by Christ as he persecuted his people. When Paul was saved, Paul did not go to a Baptist revival tent meeting and hear a good sermon and decide, I want to be saved. The apostle Paul was riding his horse to Damascus. Why was he going to Damascus? He was going to Damascus to persecute Christians, to persecute the church. 
he was going to Damascus to hunt, to hunt out his Jewish brothers and sisters who had accepted the Lord as their Savior, tie them up, and bring them bound back to Jerusalem so they could face trial in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that, that Paul, then known as Saul, was pretty serious about this. In Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, we see Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He hated Christians. He hated them, so he breathed out threatenings. He breathed out slaughter. He saw people die for their faith. In fact, if you go back and you read about the stoning of Stephen, who was the guy holding the coach for those that were stoning Stephen? It was Saul, a.k.a. Paul. And so... He is breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and desired of him, in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if any be found of this way, whether they were men or women, no chivalry here, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. So he's going to Damascus. He is on a mission to persecute the people of Christ, to persecute Christians, to persecute the disciples of the Lord. And Jesus meets him on the road. Yep. So let's pretend that this is us. We're the disciples in Jerusalem, in, in Damascus, rather. And we hear that this notorious terrorist that's been killing Christians is on his way to Brownwood. What are we praying? God, stop him. Yep. And when God shows up on the road to stop him, what do we hope God does to him? Well, you know, those disciples in Damascus at that time were probably hoping that the Lord would strike Paul dead on the road to Damascus. And that's what Paul deserved. Justice would have been served if Jesus would have done that. Yet the Lord, with the same compassion and grace he has on us, shined that on Paul. And in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That's, uh, we, we believe Jesus was saying that all this time, Paul, you've been resisting the Holy Spirit. You have been fighting against what you know to be the truth. And Jesus here is saying, You can quit that now. You can stop fighting. You can surrender. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Jesus would have made a lot of Christians happy that day if he had struck Paul dead. Let's be honest. This could have been a totally different passage of Scripture. Yet the Lord showed mercy, and he pardoned Paul. And this was a life-saving, a soul-saving experience for Paul. And so he repented of his sins and trusted the Lord as his Savior. Yes. And as a result, the Apostle Paul adopted the, 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 he adopted this attitude on life. He wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, he said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul understood the seriousness of his sin. 
And therefore, he understood the greatness and the generosity of his salvation. See, Paul understood that as a lost man, as a sinner, he persecuted the people of Christ. He killed people. He hurt people. He imprisoned people. He, and in doing so, he persecuted Jesus Christ himself. And when the Lord confronted him on the road to Damascus, what Paul deserved in that instance was death. Let's put it this way. Suppose Paul was going to Damascus to persecute the people of Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, he met the king of Damascus. What would the king of Damascus would have done to him? It killed him. Paul understood. He hurt people. He committed vile, egregious sins. When Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, the justest thing to have done would have been to slaughter Paul and to condemn him for eternity. But what Jesus did was he pardoned him. Amen. Jesus pardoned him because the sin that Paul had committed, Jesus paid for on the cross. Yes. The penalty had been paid. So Jesus called Paul to repentance. And he repented. Paul understood the seriousness of his sin. And he understood the greatness and generosity of his salvation. This forgiveness and redemption extended beyond his persecution of the church. It extended back to when Paul was just following an empty religion that was about him and was not about God. And all too often, that's our religion. Our religion too often is about us and not God. How can I feel about this? How can I validate myself in this? How can I get emotional stability out of this? Our religion is not about ourselves, what we get out of it, what we can take home from it. Whether or not we can bring ourselves into a blessed place where God can rain blessings upon us. But rather our religion is about the Lord, his grace, his greatness, his forgiveness, his redemption. That's Paul's experience. Paul stood before Jesus, a dead man. And Jesus redeemed him unto a new life. Yes, amen. That was such a transformation for Paul that he changed his name. He went from being Saul to being Paul. You see, Paul had the right experience. He knew who he was in Christ. The chiefest of sinners who was redeemed because of the mission of Christ to save sinners. Do we have that experience? Do we have the right experience? <clears throat> have we repented of sin? Have we turned away from it? Have we rejected it? Have we found no more pleasure in it? Do we understand the seriousness of our sin? Well, my sin wasn't that bad, but I repented of it. Yeah, we're, we're, we're studying biblical evangelism on Thursday nights, and when they're taking the people through the Ten Commandments, they ask them, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen? And when they ask, have you ever stolen, they don't say, have you ever stolen a Ferrari? Have you ever embezzled $2.5 million from a bank? No, they ask them, have you stolen anything, no matter how small? Maybe you stole a pen once. Because that's how people think of their, their, their sin and their pen. Um, they think, well, yeah, I'm a sinner, but aren't we all? I mean, I'm not really that bad off. I mean, you know, the Lord said, the Bible says, the law says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Have you ever bore false witness and ever told a lie? Well, yeah, I lied to my mom when I was a little kid, but who doesn't do that? One guy says, uh, you know, sometimes you tell white lies to not hurt anybody's feelings. Like when your wife asks you, do I look fat in this dress? Thank you for never asking me that question, by the way. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's just a little lie. Just, we're talking about 
We're talking about Barry. She doesn't. I, I can't remember. The, I can't remember her ever asking that question. I'm just saying. Oh. And this, boys and girls, is what you call an unforced error. <laughs> yes, I'm not. I'm backing the truck up. We're gonna go this way. I hereby repent. I wouldn't have lied to you. I told you you was beautiful. That's the truth. Um. Boy, you're going to be in this boat one day, don't you start. Uh. <laughs> hey, if we can have fun, right? Join the Lord. Amen. But we talk about, we're, the concept is bearing false witness. Yes. And people will say, yeah, I lied to my mom. I bore false witness. I told my mom I was at Jake's house when I was really at a pasture party. That's bearing false witness, and that's a serious deal because mom thinks you're at Jake's house, and when you're not at Jake's house, she doesn't know where you're at, and she's worried about you. You've caused mom a lot of emotional stress here. That's just a little, no, it's, that's a big deal. So if I catch you in a line, I, you know, and, you're, and you lied, what does that make you? They'll say, well, it makes me human. Because we don't want to grasp the seriousness of the sin. Amen. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I'll try not to be funny anymore. <laughs> We don't take our sin that seriously. And uh, maybe you weren't like Paul. Maybe you didn't persecute Christians. Maybe you didn't kill people. Maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't embezzle $2.5 million from the bank and cause other people to go bankrupt. Maybe you're not Jeffrey Dahmer. Congratulations on not being a serial killer. I'm, I'm really proud of you for that. But the fact of the matter is, your sin is serious. Because this rebellion against God, at the heart of it, is rebellion against God. It is rebellion against the one who gave you life. It is rebellion against the one who blessed you. It is rebellion against the one who gave his only begotten son to die on the cross to take the penalty for your rebellion in the first place. I mean, ingratitude is one of the biggest and worst sins you can show, and that's what we did when we were in our sinful stage. Do you recognize the severity of your sin? It's easy for me to recognize the severity of my sin because mine was pretty severe. When it results in an arrest record, it's pretty severe, okay? But, you know, people, but even then, even then, it took me years to realize that severity because, you know, that's just, that's just normal stuff, you know? Everybody runs up, don't judge me, everybody makes mistakes. Um, oh, goodness. I was witnessing a man on trial, and he was looking at a pretty long prison sentence, and all he's saying is, oh, it was just an honest mistake. You could be up here next. Well, no, it wasn't an honest mistake. And maybe I will be up there next, but it won't be for an honest mistake. Do we understand the seriousness of our sin? And are we sorrowful for that sin? Does it break our hearts, the peace that we have forfeited? Does it break our hearts, the time in God's presence and his blessing that we have missed out on because of our sin? Have we even confessed that it was sin? You know, oh, that movie, Shenandoah. Jimmy Stewart. That prayer that he says before, before dinner. Lord, we thank you for the food. We planted it. We harvested it. We harvested it. It wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be eating it if we hadn't, but we thank you nonetheless. He discounted God's blessing, right? Yeah. But it was really about me. I really did it, but my... 
My now deceased wife says we've got to pray before meals, so this is your prayer you get, Lord. Are we like that with our sin? Lord, I mean, I've been basically a good person. Any, any slip-ups I had are common to the human experience, but I know I'm supposed to pray and ask you to forgive me for that anyway, so here's my prayer of, of, here's my prayer of repentance and forgiveness. Was that our attitude? Or do we realize what God has truly re- redeemed us from? You know what makes my sin so egregious? It's not what I actually did. Oh, yeah, it is. But I mean, it's, but it's, it's, what made my sin particularly egregious and what God convicted me of the night I was saved was the fact that I had spent a lifetime being taught better. I actually had all the tools I needed to make the right choices, and I deliberately chose not to. That's what made mine particularly egregious. Have we confessed that sin? Will we turn from that sin? Or do we still seek pleasure in it? Do we realize the full level of forgiveness that Christ offers? In his 1964 speech, A Time for Choosing, Ronald Reagan questioned whether we realize the freedoms that our founding fathers had intended for us in this country. In other words, do we fully understand the freedom that our founding fathers had meant for us? Do we fully understand the forgiveness that Christ has given us? Jesus said in Luke 7, 47, that those who are forgiven much love much, but those who are forgiven little love little. Maybe that's the reason so many Christians don't really love the Lord that much. Because they don't feel like they've been forgiven for much. Because they don't see the full value of it. How much do we love the Lord? Is it much? Do we show it much? And if we don't, could it be because we don't realize how much he loves us and has forgiven us? Do we realize the price Christ paid for our sins? I want you to think about this. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. The Bible says, Grace be to you in peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. He gave himself for our sins. Jesus did more than die for our sins. He gave himself for our sins. See, when Jesus died for our sins, he did not run out ahead of the infantry on the battlefield to die a quick and a, a quick and rapid death on the battlefield in some act of triumphant he- heroic sacrifice. No. Jesus' death was not in combat. The death of Jesus was in submission and surrender. The Bible says he gave himself. In other words, Jesus turned himself over to man. He surrendered himself in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He surrendered himself to the temple guard. He surrendered himself to the Jews. He surrendered himself to the Roman army. He told Pilate, you have no power over me except it be given to you from above. He surrendered himself. He gave himself. And mankind was told that for the next few hours, you have in your custody Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. 
God in flesh. And for the next few hours, you can do to God whatever you want to do to God. And think about the crucifixion in, that, in a lot of that context. This was not a common criminal. This was God in the flesh. And God had turned himself over. They did not overpower him. He turned himself over and told them, for the next few hours, this is your time. Do to God what you want to do to God. And what did they do to God? They treated him as shamefully and as cruelly as they could imagine in that primitive time. He was beaten. He was flogged, scourged, mocked. The crown of thorns, the cat of nine tails. He was beaten to the point that you could not recognize him. And after the beating, after the scourging, they put him up in front of the crowd, in front of the Jews, in front of his people. The Messiah that God promised in the Old Testament to come and redeem them and restore their, their kingdom and their temple. And their dignity as a people, they put, the Romans put him in front of them and says, what will you have me to do? And they said, crucify him. Mm-hmm. His own people. God was placed in front of them to accept or reject, and they voted to crucify him. Yes. Jesus suffered at the hands of the very sinners he came to save. And through the beatings, the scourgings, the mockings, and the crucifixion, Jesus also endured one more thing. He endured the wrath of God. The wrath of God that we deserved. The wrath of God he should have poured out on us. He poured out on his only begotten son instead. Which is why when Jesus hung on that cross, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When I was growing up, a preacher said, God had to turn his back on Jesus because he couldn't look upon sin. If God couldn't look upon sin, he would not look upon us. Because that's who we are. Now, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something far more severe was happening. The relationship that Jesus had with the Father went from being loving Father and Son and Holy Deity to being judge and executioner and convicted criminal. You ever get in trouble with your parents? Or maybe your grandparents? And that warm, happy feeling is not there. You're now in trouble. All right, now multiply that by a couple of gazillion. You have what Jesus was experiencing on that cross. First Peter quotes Isaiah 53. In First Peter 2.24 he says, Who his own self bear our sins and his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. And what this accomplished was in First John 2.2, 2, He is the propitiation for our sins, the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Which means any debt you owe to God has been paid. You have been set free, free of guilt, free of never being good enough, free of failure. You are now free to live in the Lord's presence. Do you realize that? And do you have hope in his kingdom? The disciples were encouraged and had hope after seeing Christ resurrected and rising to the right hand of the throne of God. 
They expected him to come back at any time, and they were excited about it. Are you excited about it? Have you had the right experience? Amen. See, I think that's the problem. Yes. I think if we could take the problems with modern evangelism, modern outreach, modern church function, and boil it down, the problem is most of us haven't had the right experience. I'm not saying most of us aren't saved. I'm saying that we don't fully comprehend what the Lord has done for us. And therefore, we lack the right experience. But Paul understood this experience as good as anybody because he should have died on the road to Damascus. But yet he didn't. So if we're going to be driven like Paul, we have to have the right experience. You need to come to terms with your salvation if you have it. If you have it, you need to gain a fuller understanding. And that's why we're in the Bible. Yes. And that's why my sermons on Sunday morning center around this concept of the gospel and redemption and not how to raise godly pets. Because learning how to raise godly pets, learning how to manage your finances, there is place for that. Yes. But if we, don't ma- if we don't fully understand this experience, none of that other stuff matters. Right. Got to have the right experience. Yes. Secondly, we have to have the right message. Amen. If we don't have a message, why are we talking? I debated Scott Schamberger one day. He was an independent Baptist preacher over in Coleman, Texas. He was a very committed Calvinist, and I did not believe in Calvinism in terms of the five points. Um, I'm still not accepting the five points. But anyway, he and I were having this conversation, and the conversation centered around predestination and election and what spawned predestination and election, blah, 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 theological debate, theological debate. But I'm getting pretty passionate and we're sitting in my office at KSTA in Coleman, Texas. And I am just, no, because this is what this verse says. This is what this verse says. And this is why I believe. And this is why this is the truth. And I realize I'm really getting worked up. And this brother approached me as a brother. And he, I mean, it, 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 I don't know if you ever met him, but he was, and he's gone to be with the Lord now. But he was as good a man, I think, as you could possibly meet. High, I don't even think he had a high school education, but it taught himself construction, taught himself the scriptures had had pursu- had pursued education outside of formal realms, and I, and so I'm getting really worked up, and I stopped. I'm like, "Hey, brother, I'm getting worked up here, man. I'm I'm sorry. I don't mean to be rude." He goes, "Nah." He goes, "On with it." He said, "Because if you don't really believe in what you're saying, mm-hmm. why are you talking?" That's right. Yeah. And so he saw my passion as a good thing, and he yeah. encouraged it. You got to have the right message. If you don't have the right message and the right passage, the right passion, then what are you doing? Yeah. Verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul's primary message was the gospel. It was the first thing he taught upon arriving in a new city. When the Apostle Paul arrived in the new city, the first thing he taught was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins according to the scriptures. How Jesus died for our sins, to pay for our sins. We just talked about that. That he was buried. That he rose again the third day. And that all of this is found in the Old Testament scriptures. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered that unto you first of all. That was the first thing I taught you people. That was his primary message. His primary message was the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins according to the scriptures. Now you've got the message. What is the application of that message? In other words, when you receive the message of the gospel, what are you supposed to do? Mm -hmm. Verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, 
repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God, meaning that we no longer reject him, but we believe in him, we trust him, and we submit our lives to his will. Repentance toward God. And faith toward Christ means trusting his work on the cross to get us into heaven. Paul was committed to this message. In verse 20, he said he held nothing back. In verse 21, he said he shared it with everybody, Jews and Gentiles. He was driven to preach this message. This is what Paul was all about. Do we have faith in this message? Do we believe that this message is what the world needs to hear? And do we believe that this message will change lives? This is a message that needs to be taken to the world. The death of Jesus Christ for our sins, redemption, his burial, his resurrection, that's hope. That's the message we need to take to the world, locally through outreach and evangelism, nationally and internationally through our missions program, which includes both sending money to the missionaries, but it also includes going to the missionaries and helping them. Got to have the right message. And then finally, not Philippians chapter 4, or chapter 3 finally, but Philippians chapter 4 finally. Finally, we have to have the right mission. Amen. Verse 24, the Apostle Paul said, None of these things move me, these threats of violence, these threats of death, these threats of, of imprisonment. None of these things move me. By the way, this is why I like the King James Version better. Because I looked in NIV. I looked in NLT. And they say, well, I'm not worried about my life right now or something along those lines. But the King James Version says, none of these things move me. None of these things deter me. None of these things force a change within me. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was on a mission to preach the gospel of, of the grace of God. And this was the most important thing to Paul. He dedicated his life to it. He put his life on the line for it. It was Paul's so desire to preach the gospel and to finish his course with joy. Amen. That's something we need. That's something I need to learn. And you need to learn, so we need to learn it. Amen. This is the part of the sermon I get to point at myself. I need to learn to follow my course with joy. To find joy in the Lord and not in the things of earth. Right. If circumstance determines your level of joy, get this, I didn't like this. You ain't going to like it either. If circumstance determines your level of joy, then your joy is still found in the things of earth. Uh -huh. You may not be materialistic. You may not be chasing the money. You may not be addicted to drugs. But if circumstance determines your joy, your joy is still in the things of earth. Right. To finish the ministry God gave him. To spread the gospel to the places where God wanted it spread. To reach the people God wanted reached. Therefore... Paul was not deterred by the threats awaiting him in Jerusalem, nor was he afraid to die. He was not moved by those threats. His life was not dear. It was not more valuable. His life was not more valuable 
than the mission. And as I read this verse in verse 24, none of these things moved me. I couldn't help but think about a 20th century preacher in the United States in 1968 by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who had traveled to Memphis in his ongoing pursuit of civil rights. He goes to Memphis in 1968 and gives a speech known as the mountaintop speech. And as he gave this speech, he had been told about injunctions that would be sought to stop him from marching. He had been told about threats on his life and that, and that this is real. You, you face a very credible threat. You're probably going to die in Memphis if you go to die. If you go to preach, if you go to speak, if you go to lead in Memphis, you're probably going to die there. And in response to that, the doc, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. But none of these things move me. But I am not concerned about that now. He said, I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up into the mountain. And I've looked over. And I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. Amen. And so I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. Amen. What passion. That's a man who is committed to his mission. Yes. Just as the Apostle Paul was committed to his mission. Yes. Are you committed to a mission? What are you passion, passionate about? What are you driven by? Are you driven by a message or a cause? Our mission yes. is that given to us by the Lord. Amen. To go, make disciples, yes. baptize them, and teach them. And this mission is to be followed with the same vigor as the Apostle Paul followed it. Yes. We must have the right mission. Amen. Without a message and a mission, we are just adrift in the sea of society. No real direction, no real purpose. Yes. And that is not God's will. God's will is that we impact this community with the gospel. And there's a lot involved in that. Let that mission drive our vision and activities personally and as a church. Amen. See, it all comes down to faith. Yes. What do we believe and do we really believe it? 